Father, again, we just come to you and uh, we are so grateful that you have given us your word where we can uh, learn more about uh, the, the life that you've planned for us, uh, uh, the way you want us to live and how you want us to approach you. We learn all of these things by, by looking at these characters through the Bible that you've given us as examples for us. So, Lord, we look at Abraham today in uh, this meeting that he has with uh, Melchizedek and uh, Lord, this strange character in the Bible that uh, uh, is so important to to all of us, Lord, and uh, and we're going to see how important he was to Abraham. And from this meeting, Lord, there's application here that we can glean for our uh, meeting with you our, in, in our own Christian life. So, Lord, I just ask today that uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit that you you open our ears and hearts to to this great text, and uh, Lord, that we get a greater vision of who you are uh, through Jesus Christ. I just ask that in his precious name I pray, amen. Okay, again, if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 14, and uh, before we get started, I wanted to be sure that uh, uh, to uh, say a word to all the uh, security team here today that you might want to be on alert uh, today. Uh, I'll be going through some of these names in the Bible, and if I butcher some of these names, Brandon might get really excited and start laughing, and, and because I've given him a hard time on Wednesday night, so if, if he does uh, make a scene, I want him removed from here immediately. Now, he's a very big guy, so all of the security team will be needed for this this mission that I've given you. But anyway, I'm going to try to get through these names. Uh, so we'll get through it somehow today. But anyway, in today's lesson, Abraham's going to be a very busy man. And uh, he's going to have a very busy week as he sets out to rescue his ne- nephew Lot. And uh, when he's uh, coming back from uh, the rescue, uh, he's going to... Uh, be served dinner by a very special host. And we're, we're going to be looking at that host here, uh, that man named Melchizedek here in just a few minutes. But first, let's set the scene. Uh, if you remember from last week's study, Abraham and Lot had uh, parted ways, and Lot and his entourage had headed east towards the Jordanian plain, uh, towards Sodom. And uh, Abram had headed southwest to Hebron. And so... When we come to Genesis chapter 14, a few years have passed, and Abram's still living in, in uh, Hebron, and Sodom now has not just living, is not just living on the outskirts, I'm sorry, Lot is not just living on the outskirts of Sodom, he's actually moved into Sodom at this particular point. Uh, and so that's where we want to pick up as we come to chapter 14, uh, beginning in verse number 1. So go there with me. And it says, and it came to pass in the days of, watch this, Brandon, Amraphel, king of Shemar, Arioch, king of Eleazar, Keterlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of, the, of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, uh, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinna, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of 
Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. And these join together in the valley of Siddim, that is the salt sea. Now, hey, did y'all hear that? Those were, I think they were pretty close to right, Brandon, so you can't cheer at all. Now, here's what's happening here. Sometime before Lot moved down to Sodom, uh, this coalition of four kings, and actually these kings weren't kings of nations, they were kings of city-states. Uh, they didn't really have nations as such at this point. So, so these four kings of these city-states that were located probably somewhere uh, near Babylon and uh, Assyria, they come from the north and they invade the Jordanian plain. Uh, and they make war with the five kings of the city-states there, these names that we just looked at. And they fight this great battle down in the Valley of Siddim. And uh, Moses notes for us here that the Valley of Siddim later, after Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, became the Salt Sea. So he's writing uh, past this story, so he knows that it's now the Salt Sea. And these kings from the north were victorious, Victorious over these four, uh, these four kings from the north were victorious over these five kings in the Jordanian Valley. And so they turned these four kingdoms into vassal states. And they made them uh, pay a tribute each year. And, the, and so these kings were actually serving these kings from the north. And uh, they did so, if we see, going to verse number four, for 12 years. They served Ketalaimor. Uh, and in the thirteenth year, they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, uh, Keter, Keter, look at here, Brandon. Keter, now I practiced that and practiced that. You're loving it, aren't you, Brandon? Look at him laughing. All right, elders, get him out of here right now. I've had enough. <laughs> it's making me nervous because I knew you were going to enjoy this. <laughs> I can't believe I can't pronounce his name now. Keter Laamor, that's his name. And the kings that were with him came and they attacked the Rephaim and, <laughs> and in Ashtoreth, Karnaim, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Eman in Shavath. <laughs> I'm having a rough time. <laughs> I can't see, first of all. You burnt my light out on Wednesday night. <laughs> Kiriathim and the Horites in the mountains of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpath, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazizon Tamar. Wow, I got through that again. All right, now. Here's what these kings are doing here. Back, we'll quit joking here for a minute and look at the text. Their, what their plan is, is to attack, first of all, the possible allies of these kings, uh, these five kings in the Jordanian Valley. So what they do, they head to the west and they attack all of the little city-states in the west. Now those city-states, if you look at some of these names, these are actually giants. Uh, this is the Raphaim and the... The, uh, uh, you see the Zuzum, which are just Zuzum here. You see the Emum, 
these are all, we'll see these later on as being giants, Canaanite giants. And so they go and they, first of all, they attack them in the west. And then they head south and they attack the Amalekites and the Amorites in the south. Now what they're doing there is they're, they're, they're going to they're gonna weaken these city-states so they can't come and help uh, the five kings in the Jordanian uh, valley. And then after they've attacked them, then they, they come after the rebellious kings. And that's what we see in, beginning in verse number 8. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, what is Zorah, Zor, went out and joined together in the battle in the valley of Siddim against Keter-Laamor, king of Elam, Tidal, king of the nations, Am- Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Eleazar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah were defeated. Now we're going to have to read that in there. And they fled, and some of them fell into those pits and died there, and the remainder of the armies and the kings fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions, and they went their way. And so these these four kings that come from the north have a great victory again over these five kings in the Jordanian Valley. And, and uh, they, 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 they rout the armies, and then they loot the cities in the Jordanian plain, and uh, they take all of their possessions, and they enslave all of their inhabitants, and then they go their merry way, heading back up to the north, uh, back to where they live. But they made one big mistake. One big mistake. They messed with one of God's own People. And what did God say about that in Genesis 12, chapter 2? He said, I will bless those who bless you, and I will mess up those who mess with you. That's sort of like that. That's what he said anyway. He said, I'll curse those who curse you. So, so he, they've, if you look at verse number 12, they've messed with, with one of God's own. So they, they also took Lot, Abram's brother, uh, who now... Notice he's not dwelling towards Sodom. He was actually dwelling in Sodom at this point. And his, they took his goods and they departed. And so here is Lot now living in Sodom, but he's still a child of God. Uh, so the Lord's going to help him out. I mean, you would think maybe the Lord would just let him uh, uh, pay the price for uh, his disobedience, but... But uh, he lets him, uh, he's going he's gonna to send Abram out to, to help him. And that's what we see coming up uh, beginning in verse number 13. Then one, of, then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now, this is the first time we actually see the word Hebrew. We saw Eber earlier, and that's basically where the word Hebrew comes from. Eber is, 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 can be pronounced Hebrew, or Hebrew can be pronounced Eber. So he, he's a descendant of Eber, uh, who is in the line of Shem. So anyway, you have Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eskel, and brother of Anar, and they were allies with Abram. So Abram gets the word now that his nephew's been captured by this coalition of four kings from the north. And so he readies his army, and uh, he goes after his nephew Lot. Now, that's a pretty courageous thing to do. Uh, and it would be easy at this point to, 
point a finger at Lot and, and say, hey, you know, Lot got exactly what he deserved. Abraham certainly could have done that. Because remember, when they divided up the land, what did Lot do? Lot looked out over the best part of Israel, and he says, I want that, and you can, have, you can take the leftovers. And, and so uh, he chose the best of the land, even though that was the most wicked area probably in the entire world at that point. And so Abram could have said, hey, you know, you got exactly what you deserve. And, and you know, here's what kind of is, is really kind of baffling about this whole situation. It looks to me like Lot had moved towards Sodom. I mean, he... he, he he lusted Sodom with his eyes, and he moved towards Sodom, and now he's actually moved into Sodom. And Sodom was a very wicked city at this point, so wicked that later on we're going to see the entire, that entire Jordanian plain destroyed, and it's going to be turned into the Salt Sea. And so, so uh, he's heading into enemy territory. And he's, to me, he's heading outside the hedge of protection of God. And it's, it's as if, you know, hey, you want to get so far out away from, from what's right and what's good and you want to head totally into wickedness, you're going to get yourself in a position where God can't help you. Is that so? No, it's not so. I mean, if, I mean look at Abraham. We just saw it a, a chapter or so ago when Abraham went down to Egypt and he was totally out of God's will. He... he, he you know, was ready to give his wife up to save his life and, and just let her live with Pharaoh the rest of her life as, as Pharaoh's wife. And he, he just threw her right under the bus. And he certainly was out of, it for, to me, he was out of God's, supposedly out of God's hedge of protection. But he wasn't. God protected Abram, and he's going to protect Lot in the same way. But why? Why? Because Abram was righteous. That's why God protected him. Why was he righteous? Because, by, 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 because of his faith, because of grace through faith. And that's the same position Lot was in. We're told, we're, we're told in 2 Peter 2, 2, chapter 7, that Lot was a righteous man. I mean, he's called righteous Lot. Now, I've got to tell you, I, I, I've read Genesis several times, and I don't see much at all righteous about Lot. I don't know where he got that name, Righteous Lot, but let me tell you where he got that name. He got that name by grace that came through his faith. And so we're going to see Lot do some terrible things as we advance on in, 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 in the book of Genesis, but God still is going to protect Lot. I mean, he's going to, we're going to see him protect him when, when Sodom and Gomorrah are about to be destroyed. God's going to come himself. An angel of the Lord is going to come himself, and he's going to get Lot out of that city before it's destroyed. And so, so you don't, there's a lesson there. If you're a child of God, you might get yourself in a very difficult situation, but God's still watching over you in that situation. That's how gracious God is. All right, now, look at verse number 14. And in verse number 14, it says, now, when Abram heard that his brother was taken, notice what he calls him here. He calls him his brother. Now, why is he his brother? He's his brother in the Lord. Uh, you know, that's the way relationships advance for Christians. I mean, when you have your children, you think of your children as children up until a certain point. And then at some point, they actually become your, your if they're male, they become your brothers. If they're female, they become your sisters 
your sisters and brothers in the Lord. And that's exactly the way Abram saw Lot at this point. Now, when Lot heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants. Now, how were they trained? I mean, they were trained in battle, but how were they trained in battle? Well, you stop and think about where they were living. I mean, they had left their home country of Ur of Chaldea, and they had gone to the land of Haran. Now, what did those people about Haran think about when this big entourage of people came into their land? They probably fought against them, and they probably, they probably battled there. And then they come down into Canaan, and I'm sure they fought the Canaanites some at this point. And then they moved down to Hebron, and they fought with the, the, the people, the Amorites and the Amalekites down in that area. I'm certain they fought them. And so these are very well-trained warriors, but there's only... 318 of them and these four kings that have taken lot captive probably had tens of thousands of soldiers and so it's a very small army who's it remind you of it sort of reminds you of Gideon doesn't it I mean almost right to the number the three Gideon's 300 mighty man it really weren't necessarily so mighty why were they mighty because when you're with one with the Lord is is, is as mighty as you can get I mean, if, if, I mean, if God be for us, who can be against, against us? We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. So if you've got the Lord on your side, you don't even need 300 people. You're, you're in good shape. And, and so Abram was in good shape. He could have he won this battle by himself, but he thought he'd let his servants go along with him. So he, he takes these 318 mighty warriors and maybe a few of these Amorites because they had battled with these kings earlier. And uh, they had probably lost family members and had family members captured. And so, so they wanted to go too. And uh, uh, he, he's backed by the Lord. And so victory is a sure thing. And so they track these people down. We're looking to the next verse, or the last part of the verse we were just reading. He says he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house. I mean, they were like his own children and went in pursuit as far as Dan, now if you look at a map of Israel, Moses is speaking of Dan later on, how Dan was way up in the very northern part of Israel. And so, uh, uh, or the writer here was speaking of Dan, which is interesting because you wonder if maybe somebody else has, had, has uh, uh, changed this because Dan was actually over on the west and then later on when Dan moved all the way to the, to the north. So this might have been a... Uh, 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 a scribe later on that that uh, knew that this was the area was the area near the Golan Heights, the very northern part of Israel, and so they interject here the the, the tribe of Dan. The tribes aren't even having don't even exist at this point, but it, 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 he's talking about the furthest northern point of Israel, uh, and uh, they they had there, and Abram's going to attack those four armies. And all of those thousands of soldiers, and he's going to use the element of surprise and to confuse and defeat the enemy. And that's what we're going to see in the next few verses here. So he divided up his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them, and they had a victory. I'm going to again, I'm going to again interject a few words here. And, they, and, and these armies were scattered. And so Abram and his 300 men pursued them, as far as Hobah, which is just north of uh, Damascus. And so they go all the way into Assyria, and we know from Hebrews that they slaughter these four kings. So they have a great victory. Uh, Damascus isn't, you know, but 
30 or 40 miles from where Dan would have been. So, so that that's, that's doesn't seem far to us, but it was a long way to travel on. I don't know if they were on horse or they were walking or whatever, but they pursue them all the way into Damascus. And so he brought back, and they have a great victory, and they slaughter these kings, and they bring back all the goods, and he also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and as well as all of the people. You know, whenever the Lord gives you a victory, it is a complete victory. That's what we see here. I mean, he didn't lose anybody. He didn't lose anything. He got back absolutely everything they had taken, and he defeated these armies and scattered these armies, and he slaughtered these kings. If you're a child of God and God sends you into battle, you're, you're going to have a complete victory. I'm reminded, you remember when David uh, was hiding out in Ziglag, and he went up to fight against Saul, and, and the, the Philistine generals wouldn't let him fight, so he went back to Ziglag. And when he got back to Ziglag, as he came into Ziglag, he could see the whole city on fire, and, and they had been attacked by the Amalekites, and, they were, and all their wives and all their children had been taken away. And David's men were so angry with him uh, that he had gone up here with these Philistines, and he had risked you know, the lives of, and property of, of all of these uh, soldiers and their families and, and uh, that they, they were ready to kill David. And David strengthened himself in the Lord and the Lord said, hey, go after him. And he went after him and he recovered. He didn't recover some of them. He didn't recover some of his things. He recovered everything. And that's the kind of victory that the Lord gives us when we go to battle for the Lord. And so Abram here has a complete victory. An absolute, complete victory. So he brought back all the goods and brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. And now he's coming back. And when he comes back, the word gets out that Abram's had this great victory. And they see this entourage of servants and all of these people that have been taken captive. They see them coming back into the land with all the goods that have been stolen. And so, hey, these kings that have been hiding out They're coming out of hiding now. And that's what we see beginning in verse number 17. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Ketalaamor, and the kings who were with him. Uh, But So here's this king of Sodom, and he's coming out, he's been in hiding, and uh, uh, he wants to meet Abram, and he wants to meet him for... For selfish reasons, he wants to get some of his stuff back. He wants to get his people back. So he goes out to meet Abram. But before he can get there, another king arrives. And that's where we get to the heart of the text now, beginning down in verse number 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And bless, I mean, notice how Abram is, is titled here. Abram of God most high. What a great name. I mean, I mean don't you want to be known as, 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 as a person of the God most high? 
as George of the God Most High, as Brandon of the God Most High, as Ken of the God Most High, as Lois of the God Most High. I mean, what, what a great name. If, if people saw us that way, how wonderful that would be. Possessor of the heaven and the earth. I mean, if you're, the, if you're, if you're uh, of the God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, you're in pretty good position, aren't you? And, and blessed be the God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So here comes Melchizedek on the scene. I mean, to me, he's one of the most mysterious and important, important characters in the Bible. Uh, and, and it's interesting, if you look at this in the Hebrew, uh, you see actually he has two names, Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness, and Melchalom, which means king of peace. If you look at that literally in the Hebrew, it's actually two names. And I don't even know if it's a proper name. We give, they give it a, the, the translators give it a proper name, and they just transliterate the Hebrew, Melchizedek, but then they don't give him the proper name of Melchalom. But it's actually Melchizedek and Melchalom. And so you have, uh, his, he has these two names, that we're given, king of righteousness, king of peace. And not only is he a king, he's a priest of the God Most High. Now, that's a pretty important position. And he's not just a priest, he's the priest of the God Most High. And uh, he's going to bless Abraham with this great blessing. Now, just, who is this guy? Who is he? We looked at this when we... We were in Hebrews not too long ago, but, but uh, it's, I think it's pretty easy to figure out who he is. And probably most of you know who he is before I even go here. But, but uh, let's see if we can, we can n- nail down exactly who this guy Melchizedek is. But we're going to need some more information. So go with me in your Bibles and go with me to uh, the book of Hebrews. And we're not going to look at everything it has to say about Melchizedek here. But we want to look at uh, beginning in chapter number 7. And we'll get some really interesting clues as to who Melchizedek is. Now we're going to see some of the same clues that we saw in Genesis 14 repeated here. Uh, but uh, let's, let's, let's just read this passage and and you should be able to figure out who he is. All right, it goes in verse number 7. It says, for this Melchizedek, I mean in verse number 1 of chapter 7, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, in whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, everything he had, first being translated uh, king of righteousness, Milk, uh, uh, milk, uh, Kedet, uh, Zadok, rather, milk, Zadok, uh, which is king of righteousness, and then, uh, milk, uh, Shalom, meaning king of peace. And then we get some really good clues here in verse number three. He's without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life but made like the Son of God. 
Now, this causes a lot of people problems right here because it says, like the Son of God. And he remains a priest continually. Now, consider how great this man was. I mean, he's going to give you some idea of just how great he was. To whom even the great patriarch, Abraham, gave a tenth of his spoils. So he gives him a tenth of everything that he had made in that battle and maybe even more. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. So basically, they're receiving tithes uh, to give to Melchizedek. That's, That's what he's saying there. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, listen to what he says in verse number 7, and this is a truism here. He says, now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. You know, that's why I'm very, very careful about blessing people because I don't want people to think, hey, I'm, the reason I'm blessing you is because I'm better than you. Because it, it, it says here, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, mortal man received tithes, but there he received them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. So, so Abraham, this great father of faith, gave his tithes to Melchizedek. We'll see who Melchizedek is in is here in a minute. Even Levi, who receives tithes, also pays tithes through Abraham because they come from Abraham. So, but look at verse number ten. But he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him, and so, in effect, all tithes end up going to Melchizedek. All right, now. Let's look at this list of clues we got right here. And you, you, you get them in Genesis 14, but we get them repeated here in, in uh, chapter number 7 of Hebrews. So what I want to do is look at this list of clues that we're given right here. Uh, and then I want to look at the most, incom- the most common interpretations as to who uh, Melchizedek is. And then what we want to do is just kind of figure out uh, I'll let you figure out for yourself uh, just who uh, this guy Melchizedek is. But, but from Genesis chapter 14 and from chapter 7 of Hebrews, we, we get these clues, first of all, looking back at the text. First of all, he is, looking in verse number 2, he is the king of righteousness. Now, that's as far as i got to go to figure out uh, who this guy is. Where do I get my righteousness? from the most righteous one ever, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the King of peace. Where does peace come from? The King of kings and the Lord of lords. Uh, the, the second thing that we get, uh, or the third thing, however you want to look at it, is that he is the, king, the, the high priest of the God most high. He is the priest of the God most high. So that's... The next clue we would get in Genesis 14, also here in chapter 7 of Hebrews. The next clue that we get in Genesis 14, you don't get it into down in verse number uh, 7 in Hebrews chapter 7, but he blesses Abraham. 
Now, you've got to think about that a minute. Abraham's, you know, to the Jews, the greatest man who ever lived. Uh, the greatest man who ever lived. They don't believe Jesus Christ is the greatest man who ever lived. So the fact he blesses Abraham tells us that he's greater than Abraham. And Abraham recognizes that he's greater than him because the next clue that we get in Genesis uh, chapter 14 and we get here in, in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 7 too is that Abraham gives Melchizedek a tenth of all he has. In other words, he gives a tithe to Melchizedek. Now, let's look at the clues we get here in, that are exclusively here in uh, Hebrews chapter 7. The first clue, he, in verse number 3, look at verse number 3, he, doesn't have a, he didn't have a father. Uh, he didn't have a mother. He's without genealogy. The fact that he's without genealogy means that he wasn't born into existence. He just has been there. He's always been there. Uh, uh, and that brings us to the next clue that we get. Uh, he doesn't have a beginning of life in, in, chap, in, in verse number, chapter 7, verse number 3. He won't have an end to life. In other words, he's immortal. Who's immortal? Only God is immortal. And that's why I kind of, when we advance on in this, I kind of wonder about people who see and give another identity to this man, Melchizedek, other than Jesus Christ, because only Jesus Christ is immortal. And if, if Melchizedek is another person, then you have another immortal God. You're bringing another God on the scene, and that's, that's not possible. So, so, again, I hate to give away the, the mystery here that, that he's Melchizedek is Jesus Christ, but then you get the, the problem area, the third clue that we're given right here. In verse number three, he's like the Son of God. Again, that causes people a, a lot of problems. All right? And then the n- next clue that we get in Hebrews is, is that, uh, uh, in effect, the Levites, including the high priest and Abraham, give tithes to him. He doesn't tithe. He, gives, he receives tithes. All right? And then... Uh, the, we see in verse number 7 that uh, he being the greater bless Abraham the lesser and you got to ask the question how could anyone be greater than Abraham any human being be greater than Abraham I mean he was considered by many the greatest man who ever walked this earth uh, not by us but by many people now let me give you the most common solutions as to the identity of Melchizedek. Uh, the first solution is that he's the king of Jerusalem. Well, it makes a little sense because Shalom, Jerusalem is Jehovah's is, uh, peace. Uh, so uh, uh, he's, the, he's the, the, you can see that might fit, but, in, but at this point, what was Jerusalem? It was a, pagan city-state and the king was a pagan king so for me it's impossible that he was the king of Jerusalem uh, he is the king of Jerusalem uh, but not the king of the earthly Jerusalem but not at this point he will be one day uh, the second most common interpretation and this is the interpretation of most of the Jews and that is that Melchizedek is Shem uh, you remember Shem the son of Noah from the, and from Shem comes the Semites. Uh, Shem is the forefather of Abraham. 
Shem was still alive when Abraham had this great victory over these uh, five kings, or these four kings, rather. So uh, he was still alive, and he certainly would have been highly esteemed by the Semite uh, group of people that were living on the earth at that time. And so uh, he's, he, he certainly fits the role of a patriarch, and for many he would fit the role of a high priest. People would have looked up to him. He was closest to the line of Noah and to the closest to the line of Adam, who was the son of God. And so a lot of people would have looked up at, to Shem maybe as even a high priest at this point. So Shem really almost fits the possibility of being Melchizedek. The third possibility is that Melchizedek was an angel, uh, greater than even Michael the archangel, and certainly based upon all of these qualifications we see right here, he would have had to have been greater than Michael the archangel. So some people see him as an angel. And then the fourth interpretation, which is the right interpretation, is that he, this is none other than Jesus Christ. What we're seeing here is a theophany, a pre-incarnate uh, uh, appearance of Jesus Christ. So who do you think Melchizedek is? How many of you go with Shem? If you say Shem, you're wrong. If you say the king of Jerusalem, you're wrong. I, I mean, obviously it can't be Shem because uh, Shem was born he had a father. We know he had a father. His father was Noah. We know he had a beginning because he lived uh, before the flood, and we know he died after the flood, and so we know it can't be Shem. Uh, it, it, it can't be Shem. Uh, so, and it can't be the king of Jerusalem because even if, it was, even if uh, there was a king that came to, to Abram, it, it, he, he would have had a father, he would have had a mother, he would have had a beginning, and he would have had an end. So it can't be the king of Jerusalem. It can't be an angel, because angels have beginnings. They're created beings. Every angel is a created being. The only being that is immortal is God himself. So it has to be Jesus Christ. And if he's the king of kings, then he is the king of righteousness. He is the king of peace. He is our high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. Isn't that exactly who he is? He is the one who blessed Abraham on several occasions. I mean, he appeared to Abraham not just once. He appeared to Abraham on several occasions. That's why when Jesus was walking this earth, after he had been born in Bethlehem, you remember what he he, he said in response to the Jews uh, uh, when they were badgering back and forth in John chapter 8, he said, I knew Abraham when he walked this earth, and he rejoiced to see my day. And so he, he, he had walked with Abraham. He had talked with Abraham. Uh, and, and he certainly was there to bless Abraham. Uh, and you go back to the beginning of Jesus Christ, and he did not have a father and mother. He had a father and mother in Bethlehem, but he was virgin born. So even then he didn't have a father and the mother per se as normal human beings have. Uh, he, has, he, has, he didn't have a beginning of life or an end of life. Uh, in Micah 5, 2, it says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are 
are little among thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth me, the one who to be ruler of Israel, whose going forth, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. So, for me, there's only one possibility here: that the King of Righteousness, the King of Peace, is none other than Jesus Christ. Now, that's if you interpret these texts literally, and I don't see any reason not to ter- interpret them literally. And if you put all of these clues together. Melchizedek is none other than God himself in the flesh. And God himself in the flesh is none other than Jesus Christ. But here's the objections. Well, obviously the Jews are going to object because they don't believe in Jesus Christ. They're going to have to find somebody else to fit this mold because because, uh, they don't believe in him as as the great high priest, as the son of God. Uh, The cults don't necessarily make Melchizedek and uh, identify Melchizedek as Jesus Christ because they believe that Jesus Christ does have a beginning. Uh, and he, uh, he doesn't have an end, but he does have a beginning, that he is a created being. Uh, and here's where I, I get kind of, uh, I don't want to say disturbed, but muffed a little bit that many evangelical theologians object to Melchizedek being uh, uh, Jesus Christ. And the reason they do that, because it says here in the book of Hebrews, again, looking at verse number 3, that he is like the Son of God. Now, that does present some problem, because Jesus is not like the Son of God. He is the Son of God. But now you've got to think about this. When did Jesus Christ become the Son of Man? When did he become the Son of God? When he came to Bethlehem, when he was born in Bethlehem. Up until that point, he, as a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, he was like the Son of God who came to Bethlehem. It was God manifesting himself in a body, a body identical, I believe, to the body of Jesus Christ, but not the same body that was born in Bethlehem. And so uh, that answers that question for us. And, 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 and it, when you look at this in other areas of the Old Testament where you see these theophanies, you'll see it. Jesus described as one like the Son of God because you remember when when uh, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar looked down there and he said, I, I see four men down there, one who is like the Son of God. Look to him like, the son, like a God, like the Son of God. And so uh, up until this point, Jesus was like the Son of God. He doesn't take on that title of Son of God or Son of Man until he comes to Bethlehem. And so that answers that question for me. So I have no doubt in my mind that Jesus Christ is Melchizedek. So what? So what? I mean, so what? I mean, what, 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 what does that matter to me? It matters a lot to you. It matters a lot to you. Uh, let's go back to this scene, and I, I may, may make that point for you here as we, as we wrap this up. Just imagine this scene. Here's Abraham. Abram at this point, he's returned from this great victory over these four kings. He's recovered all the loot. He's recovered Lot. I mean, he's done exactly what I think God had called him to do. But Abraham knows. He's he's wise. He knows that it wasn't him and his 318 servants that got this victory, that that it wasn't his power or his might, that that this victory came by the power of the Lord. 
And so he's coming back, and he, and he knows that the Lord has given him this victory. And then here comes the king of Sodom and coming out of the mountains, and I don't know if he knows he's coming or not. But before he gets there, Melchizedek arrives. I mean, Melchizedek, one like the Son of God, God himself, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, the, the great high priest, the commander of the armies of the Lord. I mean, he comes, and he comes to see Abraham, and nobody but Abraham. I mean, he wants to visit with Abraham and nobody else. And he doesn't just come to see him. He comes to dine with him. That sounds like Jesus to me. He comes to dine with him, and what does he bring? He brings bread and Diet Coke. <laughs> not Diet Coke. He brings bread and wine. Now, you can argue over whether or not that wine was fermented or not. It's the same wine that you're told not to in, 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 in the Levitical law to, to, to offer up to the Lord to not and the same wine that got the Jews drunk uh, and, and when they had that orgy uh, with a golden calf. And so, so it's the same wine. Now, whether or not this was fermented or not, I'm not going to go there. But just imagine this. Imagine you've come back from this great victory, and you're feeling pretty good about that. I mean, you've saved your nephew. You've, you've, you've recovered all of his goods. You've, you've saved all these other people that, that really were just... Uh, beneficiaries of, of your venture against these uh, four kings. And, and, and so uh, here comes the king of kings, and he's going to dine with you. And, and, I mean, I just can't imagine dining with the king of righteousness and the king of peace, the king of kings. And, and while you're sitting there eating, all of a sudden, he blesses you. And what a great blessing. Going back to chapter 14 of Genesis. Look at that blessing that he gives Abraham. He said, blessed be Abram, the God most high. He's not saying not only you're blessed. He's saying you're going to be blessed. You're going to be a blessing. I'm going to bless you. Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of the heaven and earth. And Blessed be the God most high who has delivered your enemies uh, into your hand. I mean, God gave you this victory, Abraham, and Abraham knew that. And what does Abraham do? I mean, he is so overwhelmed with joy and gratitude. You know what he does? With a cheerful and grateful heart, he gives a tenth of all his spoils. I th- really, literally, all he has. To the Lord. And, and here's where a lot of people go wrong. They run to this passage and they say, this is the law that was established by Abraham for tithing. Man, you're really missing this if you see this as a law. Abraham wasn't establishing a law here. He was sta- establishing a standard for giving. A standard for giving uh, uh, to the Lord. Giving that comes from people who love the Lord and are grateful to the Lord, and care for the Lord. They're going to give. They're going to give a tenth of what they have. They're going to give a tenth of all they have. They're going to give a tenth of their money. They're going to give a tenth of their time. And then the Lord leaves Abram all alone, and along comes the king of Sodom. 
Now, imagine that. You're with the king of kings, and then all of a sudden, here comes the king of Sodom. Imagine that you're with Jesus Christ one minute, and then the next minute, Donald Trump comes to your house to eat. I got to tell you, Donald Trump wouldn't impress me very much after seeing the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He didn't impress me much as it is, but he wouldn't impress me much at all. I mean, for, to just have had this visit. And so, so, so here comes this, this uh, King of Sodom. He comes out of his hiding like a rat coming out of, a, out of a dark hole. And he still thinks he's something. I mean, there's no doubt he's, he was a proud, arrogant man. But, I mean, human kings lose their luster when you've been with the king of kings. You know, some people have asked, how could a relatively unknown prophet like Elijah storm into the palace of Ahab and say, there's going to be a drought for three years? Let me tell you how... Elijah could do that. Elijah could do that because Elijah spent most of his time in the presence of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And when you're in the presence of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, men like Ahab are nothing more than worms in your sight. Didn't bother him a bit to go into Ahab's presence and pronounce that drought. So here comes the King of Sodom. Sodom, And uh, let's, let's read on and let's see what happens here. It says in verse 21, Now the king of Sodom, Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, literally the souls. You know, a lot of people see the king of Sodom as a type of the devil. And here's, here's, here's what the devil's really concerned about. He's not concerned about what you have. He's concerned about getting your soul. And he uses material things to steal your soul away. But here's the... Here's the king of Sodom, and he says to Abraham, he says, Give me the souls, and you can take the goods for the loot for yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, Hey, you're too late. I just had dinner with the king of kings. And I've raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. And I've had dinner with him, and, and, and uh, I've raised my hand, and I've sworn to the Lord that I will take nothing from a thread up to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abram rich. Because it's not you who makes me rich. It's the Lord who makes me rich. And, and, and anything I have of value, every good and perfect gift comes from the Lord of heaven, the Lord of lights. And so uh, uh, I don't care what you want to give me. You're not going to impress me with that. You can keep it all. Now, contrast that to just a few years earlier. Abram had gone down to Egypt, and he had gotten out of the will of God. He had pawned off his wife to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh had given him this great dowry. And then when the Lord comes to Pharaoh and scares Pharaoh half to death, Pharaoh says, hey, what did you lie to me for? Uh, Tell me your wife was your sister. I want you to get out of here and take everything I gave you with you. You know... You see this change starting to happen in Abraham's heart and the more and more he's with the Lord. I mean, he didn't say to Pharaoh, no, you keep it all. I only take things from the Lord. No, now he's, he's, he's full of the Spirit. He's full of the Spirit because, because of why? Because he's been with the great high priest. Because he spent time with the Lord. And now he says, hey, you keep all of this stuff. I don't want this stuff. I only want the things that the Lord wants to give me. Have you ever come to that point in your life? 
where all you want are the things that God wants to give you, boy, that is a great place to be. And, and he goes on and he says, he says, except, you know, I mean, a few exceptions here, except only what the young man have eaten and the portion the man who went with me, uh, Aner, Eskel, and Mamre, let them take their portion. In other words, they haven't made this oath. They've, they've had a victory too, so, so let them and their, whoever came with them, let them keep what they, they made. I don't want any of this stuff. Uh, we also, we ate some food and provisions along the way. We killed some cattle to feed the army, so, so that stuff's gone, and I'm not going to give that back to you. But the rest of this stuff, you can have it. I don't want it. Now, here's what's interesting to me. Now, we're done with, that, with this chapter. Where's Lot? What's Lot doing at this point? I mean, he doesn't, it doesn't say anything about the fate of Lot. So what happened to Lot? Well, we know what happened to Lot. And, and, and Abraham doesn't say anything about the fate of Lot. Abraham didn't say, well, okay, I want, you know, you can have all of the goods and all of the loot and all of the souls, but you can't have Lot. He's my nephew. I want him and his family and his servants and I want to take them back with me. But Abraham doesn't say that, does he? Because he's given Lot a choice to make. He's going to, Lot, you can go with me. That, that's certainly, that, that's a possibility. And after what you've been through, I would think you would want to go with me. Or, Lot, you can do whatever you want to do. What does Lot choose to do? Well, we, we, we're not told here, but we know what he chooses to do from the rest of the book of Genesis, he chooses to go back to Sodom. Righteous Lot chooses to go back to Sodom. Now what a contrast you got right here. And both of these are men of God. They're both men of faith. They're both righteous in God's eyes. But you've got Lot going back to dine with the wicked. And you've got Abram dining with the king of kings and lord of lords. That brings me to the application of this text. And there's great application in this text for us. And that's why Melchizedek is such an important person to us. Because he is the king of righteousness. He is the king of peace. He is our great high priest. And so we want to ask ourselves today, as we finish this message, where are we doing most of our Dining. Are we doing it with the wicked? Or are we doing it with the Lord? Are we engaged in wicked things? Or are we engaged in righteousness? I'm reminded of Jesus in the book of Revelation as he speaks to the church of Laodicea. And he says to them in Revelation chapter, 20, after chapter 3 verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door And knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come and dine with him and he with me. I have no doubt that Jesus was speaking to the church of pretenders there, to people who say they're a church where the people were were rich and 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 having a good time and and uh, called themselves Christians, but they really didn't know the Lord. The Lord was on the outside. But I think there's application for, for people who aren't pretenders. I mean, sometimes those of us who aren't pretenders act like pretenders. 
And we act like the wicked. We live with the wicked. We do wicked things. And it's as, in effect, as if we place Jesus outside our lives and he's knocking on the door. And he wants to come in and he wants to dine with us and he wants us to let him in. He wants us to fellowship with him. And if we open the door, he says, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. And when he comes to dinner, he brings the bread and wine. He brings, and this, we're speaking spiritually now, but he brings the bread of his word. When you're in the word, spiritually, you are dining with the Lord. When you're partaking, when you're dining with the Lord in the word, you're, you're becoming full of the spirit. That is the wine that he brings, the spirit, the spirit of peace, the spirit of joy. That's the great wine that we drink when we dine with Jesus Christ. And not only that, that wine represents his, the, the, I mean, that wine represents his shed blood, and that bread represents his broken body. And, and when we, the king, what it says to us, that this king that we're dying with, I mean, that we're dining with, has died for us. He's died for us. And when we're dining with the Lord on a regular basis, when, when we're with the Lord on a regular basis, He's going to bless us. He's going to bless us. Maybe not materially, but he's going to bless us spiritually. And if we're truly dining with the Lord on a regular basis, and we're truly blessed by the Lord spiritually, we're going to want to give back to the Lord. We're going to want to give back to the Lord, not because we're under law, but because we're so grateful because of what the Lord has done for us. And so we're grateful and cheerful givers. And because the one we're dining with is our king, he is our righteousness and he is our peace and he is our high priest who ever intercedes for us. And, and when we're dining with the Lord, look at Abram. In Egypt, and then look at him before this king of Sodom. Before this king of Sodom, he was a bold and daring witness for God. That's the only way you and I can be bold and daring witnesses for God is when we are dining on a regular basis with the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And it only gets better. If we dine with him now spiritually, One day we're going to dine with him physically in the heavenly, in his presence, in his very presence. Just like Abram did, except he's going to be in all his glory. And we're going to be in his presence in the heavenly Jerusalem at the great wedding supper of the Lamb. So don't waste, here's the lesson, simple. Don't waste what's left of your life dining on wicked things with wicked people. 
Spend some time dining with the Lord, and you'll be blessed. I promise you that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word, and again, the great application that you give us through the life of Abraham and, and the things that he experienced as a friend of God. Lord, we want to be friends with you. We want to be friends with the king of peace, with the king of righteousness, with the great high priest. Lord, but that takes an effort. Friendship takes an effort. Lord, help us to be the kind of people who lay aside the wicked things of this world, who separate ourselves from the wicked of this world and spend time with you in your presence with the king of kings and the great, the great I am the great Melchizedek. We just thank you for all you teach us through your word. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.